You may be seated. Let's take our Bible. This morning for our Bible study, and before we do communion, let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 14. If you need the notes, they're in the bulletin. Otherwise, the ushers are going to move through the auditorium and hand you some of those copies of those notes so that you can follow along as we do a brief study in the Gospel of Mark before we celebrate communion. There was a child who was asked to do a book report. He decided that because of his Sunday school attendance, he would do a book report, a verbal book report, that he would present to his class that would be on the entire Bible in just a couple minutes. And so his teacher got the book report afterwards and then she finished as what she could fill in the blanks from what the child had written and then what the child said spontaneously. Here is his book report on the whole Bible. In the beginning, which occurred near the start, there was nothing but God, darkness, and some gas. The Bible says, the Lord thy God is one. But I think he must have been a lot older than that. Anyway, God said, give me a light. Someone did. Then God made the world. He split the Adam and made Eve. Adam and Eve were naked, but they weren't embarrassed because mirrors hadn't been invented yet. Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating one bad apple, so they were driven from the Garden of Eden. Not sure what they were driven in, though, because they didn't have cars yet. Adam and Eve had a son named Cain, who hated his brother as long as he was able. Pretty soon, all of the early people died off, except for Methuselah, who lived to be like a million or something. One of the next important people was Noah. He was a good guy, but one of his kids was kind of a ham. Noah built a large boat, put his family and some animals on it. He asked some other people to join him, but they said they would have to take a rain check. After Noah came, it's bad, I know. After Noah came, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was the more famous than his brother Esau because Esau sold Jacob his birthmark in exchange for some pot roast. Jacob had a son named Joseph who wore a coat that was really loud. Another important Bible guy is Moses, whose real name was Charlton Heston. Moses... Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and away from the evil Pharaoh after God sent ten plagues on Pharaoh's people. These plagues included frogs, mice, lice, bowels, and no cable TV. God fed the Israelites every day with manicotti. Then he gave them his top ten commandments. These included don't cheat, lie, smoke, dance, or covet your neighbor's stuff. Oh yeah, I just thought of one more. Humor thy father and thy mother. One of Moses' best helpers was Joshua, who was the first Bible guy to use spies. He fought the Battle of Jeritol, and the fence fell over on the town. After Joshua came David, he got to be king by killing a giant with a slingshot. He named his son Solomon, who had about 300 wives and 500 porcupines. My teacher says he was wise, but that doesn't sound so very smart to me. After Solomon, there was a bunch of major league prophets. One of these was Jonah, who was swallowed by a big well, then barfed up on shore. There was also some minor league prophets, but I guess we don't need to worry about them. After the Old Testament came the New Testament. Jesus was the star of the New Testament. He was born in Bethlehem in a barn. I wish I had been born in a barn, too, because my mom always says to me, close the door, were you born in a barn? It'd be nice to say to her, as a matter of fact, I was. During his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like the Pharisees and Republicans. Jesus also had 12 12 possums. The worst was Judas Asparagus. Judas was so evil that they named a terrible vegetable after him. Jesus was a great man. He healed many leopards and even preached the, the Germans on the mount. 
but the Republicans and all those guys put Jesus to death before, or brought Jesus to trial before Pontius the Pilate. The Pilate didn't stick up for Jesus, he just washed his hands. Anyways, Jesus died for our sins, then came back to life again. He went up to heaven, but will back, come back at the end of the aluminum. His return is foretold in the book of Revolution. Now that's a child's perspective of what the Bible is all about. And it can be humorous, it can be funny, and we can think that's kind of cute. But it's not cute when we come to communion and there's all kinds of confusion. When people come to celebrate this, some on a weekly basis, some like we do on a monthly basis, sometimes there's those who spread it out. And we better understand what we're doing and not be confused or twisted or let our childlike faith all of a sudden mess up the reality. So what I'd like to do this morning before we get into communion and to participate is go to Mark chapter 14. If you've been with us on Wednesdays and a couple Sundays, we're going through the gospel of Mark. I'm jumping a couple chapters ahead of where I am normally, and I want to get into that section just for this morning, where Jesus is going to celebrate communion and make some observations about it so we have a clear understanding of what we're doing this morning when we do communion. As you go through the account, keep in mind that as we go into reading this story of that first communion, it happened around the feast of what we call Passover. We read in verse 12, the first day of the unleavened bread when they killed the Passover was Jesus with his disciples said, and he goes on and he talks at the end of the verse about eating the Passover. This was a holiday that was very, very important in the Jewish society at that date, and even to this day. But in that time, it was an annual feast that would come in the springtime. It was their biggest holiday. It was going to be the Independence Day that they would look back and see how they were brought out of Egypt and celebrate their independence as a nation, their beginning. It would occur March, April, around our time of Easter. And so it would happen in those times, and many traveled to Jerusalem. We have indication that the city would just all of a sudden expand by the tens of tens of tens of thousands, estimates that there could be up to a couple million people would even show up for that holiday. We don't know how many there were, but we know that these people would travel, and since the law required that you ate the Passover's feast within the city walls, the city that was predicted to come, the Jerusalem, that they were, that city would all of a sudden be overwhelmed with people. That means that the places to eat where they would celebrate the Passover with the family, they'd be very, very rare, and they would be hard to get, and you'd pay a premium price. So what happens is they come and they have this Thursday evening, we would say Thursday evening, it would be their Friday morning. It would be because their, their morning started at dusk. And so their early Friday or our Thursday evening, they would celebrate this meal. And so Jesus is having his last supper on his last day of his earthly life. And he's celebrating with the disciples. So that's our setting of what we're doing. Because the city would be so busy and there would be rooms at a premium, Jesus says to two of the disciples, he says, I want you, and we understand later from another gospel, it's Peter and John, he says, I want you to go in and prepare the meal. Now we pick up on the story that it says, the disciples said unto him, where will you that we should go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? He sent forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, go ye into the city and there shall you meet a man bearing a pitcher of water, follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say to you, say to you to the good man of the house, the master says, where is your guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. His disciples went forth, came into the city, found as he had said, and they made ready the Passover. Just to highlight a couple things, they're told to find a man who is carrying a pot of water. That would be very unusual. Men didn't do this work. 
This was a lady's job, and whether you like it or not, it was a woman's job, and the only ones who possibly could do it were lowly, lowly slaves. And so Jesus says, go into the city that's filled with thousands of people. Look for a man carrying a pot of water. Follow that man. Now there might be a few, but they're going to find that one. They follow him, and then when you get there, say to the owner of the house, the master, he wants to use your guest room. Show it to us. He, they show it to him. It's a large upper room. It has the furnishings. And then the men make ready for it. Now just, again, this is the setting of the meal. There are some questions about how this all came about. The disciples, they found just as Jesus said, Jesus either made some very specific arrangements with some guy who owned the house to have his servant at a certain spot at a certain time where his disciples would happenstance come upon him and be able to follow or, and this is what I think is the text, the gospel writer is highlighting to his readers that Jesus is unique. Jesus is divine. He knew things that were happening even in the midst of thousands of people. He knew that there would be one room that could be available. We will get that room. And so Mark seems to be of that ilk. And the questions come up, were there others there? We typically get the picture that there was nobody else there, that nobody was in the room. But there's a possibility out of this text there could be others. Because according to this text, it, it is a family celebration. We know that historically. You would show up with your family. That's the ones you would celebrate with. And it's a large upper room stressed in this text that it would accommodate a good amount of people that could be there. As well, it says in the text, he came in with the 12. And some assume well, that means there was only 12 there. Well, there could have been others that were there waiting for them. There could have been others who came along with, but aren't mentioned, but with the twelve. And what happens there here that might in, indicate there was others is during the meal, Jesus is going to indicate somebody betrays me. And he said, it is one of you who eats with me will betray me. That could include everyone in the room. It could mean the twelve, or it could include maybe some of their family members that are there. The next statement seems to indicate that there could be others there. He Then he said, it is one of the twelve that dips the bread with me, which might imply there was others in the room, but now when they press him, who is it, who is it? He says, well, it's one of you who are closest to me here at this one table, one of you twelve, and none of, none of your family members. Again, we don't know. We don't know. But what happens in the story that is a fact that is actually very clear is Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And we read in the account, as you just keep on going through Mark 14, when the evening was come with the twelve, that they sat and did eat. So they're further along in the meal. They come to that portion where they're eating more of the food. Verily I say unto you, one of you which eats with me shall betray me. And they began to be very, 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 very sorrowful. The word is grieving as if they have a loss, and say unto him one by one, Is it I? Is it I? Is it me? And he answered and said, It is one of the twelve that dips with me in the dish. And so what you have is Jesus has already been telling them, if you've been with us in the study of Mark, the last few weeks as Jesus has been going to Jerusalem, he has said three different times, I go to Jerusalem, I will be, bet I will be killed, I will then rise again, and then I will you know, resurrect. And, and he, he basically gives them the information of his passion. He's predicted that. And even though he knows that is coming,
coming. He headed to Jerusalem. He's there in the city for several days. Now he's there Friday morning, Thursday night, our time. He's there and he says, one of you eating here is going to betray me. They respond with great grief. And then they ask the question, surely it isn't me. Surely it isn't me. In the original language, they are expecting him to respond, no, it's not you. No, it's not you. Now, Jesus is unveiling all of this. He, again, his, his deity is very clearly presented. That he knew the future. He knows who's going to betray him. He knows what's going to happen. How he's going to be beaten and scourged and whipped and spit upon. He said all that. And he knows all those details. And then he says here, one of you is going to betray me. I can't help but try to imagine. What did Judas feel like at that moment? That he was found out. That Jesus, you know, did Jesus look at him? Did Jesus, did they not do eye-eye to contact? But Jesus knew. And Jesus makes another statement here that causes a lot of people some upheaval. He says in verse 21, The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good it were for that man if he had never been born. Jesus again indicates everything that is happening to him has been divinely planned. That God has indicated this is going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zacharias says. I'm going to have my beard plucked out. I'm going to be beaten to the point that nobody can recognize me. I'm going to be put between two thieves. I'm going to have my life taken, slain, as it talks about Daniel 9. All of this was predicted. Jesus knows it. Jesus is divinely fulfilling what God has planned and predicted. And in part of it, it has been divinely predicted that somebody would betray him. So in this text you have God providentially, sovereignly making arrangements, but you also have Judas being held responsible for his choices. Judas wasn't a pawn that he had no choice. He had choice. And so on one side of the coin, divine uh, knowledge and divine planning. The other side of the coin, human responsibility. How that all plays out, I don't know. But I do understand that God knows... And God predicts, but we have choice and we're held responsible for our choices. And here he is. Judas is held responsible. God says it'd be better. Jesus, God, said it'd be better if he had never been born. That's up to this point in the story. That's what happens. And so in that story, Judas leaves and Jesus then introduces what we call the Last Supper. It's the very first Last Supper. And it goes on in verse 22. And as they did eat... Jesus took the bread. Now, understanding this meal helps you out. That it was customary when this meal took place, if you all gathered for your Passover, you would have several courses of food in that meal. They were basically predated each one with a cup of wine that would be used to introduce another course. And in this meal, there was set up that at the very beginning, there would be a blessing by you dads would be pronounced, or granddads, you would pronounce the blessing, and the youngest child or a person there, was supposed to ask the older one, why are we celebrating this meal? And then they would explain before they ate the story of the Passover, how they were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. God sent Moses. Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go. Then there was the 10 plagues that did not include cable TV, but there was the 10 plagues that would happen. 
And then at the end of the tenth plague there was the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians that caused Pharaoh to finally release them. But the Jews were spared, all of those who believed, and the Egyptians who believed by sacrificing an animal, taking its blood and putting it on the doorpost of that house. So when the death angel came by, he would pass over that house and leave everyone there unharmed. But all the firstborn of all the Egyptians their homes where they did not put blood on the door, they would suffer the death. Now that's the story. That's what they're celebrating. That's what this meal is all about. And this meal was done in a way different than what we're going to do in a few moments. The meal would include meats from the, uh, from the animal that was slain to represent the Passover, the blood being shed. There would be some bitter herbs that would be put into the meal to represent the bitterness of slavery. They would use only unleavened bread because that didn't take time to rise and prepare. And so they would kill the lamb and that would be as a symbolic death of, some, of, a, of life and its blood was shed so that judgment would pass over us. And so that, this was all a very symbolic meal that would take place. And uh, as you go through it and you think about it, the Jews would be doing this year after year to just remember their heritage, God's provision. And they've been, then during the meal, they would not only look back, but they would look future. And there are a lot of times would say, next time in Jerusalem or next time, you know, in the kingdom. And they've been doing this now for 1,500 years. This has been really, this is a, this is a tradition that is, if we were all involved, this would be a tradition that all of us do, and we've been doing it for generations, and all of a sudden Jesus changes it all. Jesus in the Passover that evening, he's celebrating with the disciples and anybody else who was in that room, and Jesus does something that is so different. What Jesus does is like at a wedding, the best man gets up and he's going to make some type of comment, and it's all about him. And the best man draws all the attention to him and basically the groom is forgotten. We would find that reprehensible. That just doesn't happen. Well, that's what Jesus does in this meal. This meal is all about what God did, what God did, what God did, what God did in bringing the plagues, what God did in providing for us. And Jesus, in the, in, as this meal is going on, he stands up and he says, oh, by the way, this is about me. Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said that they should drink. And he said, this is my blood in the New Testament, which is shed for many. And so all of a sudden, he's changing the focus. And he tells them, you know, in other passages, he says, you got to do this regularly. You do this you know, annually, monthly, weekly, whatever you choose. You do this, and when you do this, think about me. Think about not what's happened in the past, but what I'm going to do for you all of a sudden this next few hours. And then later on, you look back at what I did for you those next few hours on this very day that they're celebrating. And so he doesn't include the whole meal. He just says, I want to focus in on just the bread and the juice. And he says, they're going to be the two main elements that when you get together, you think about me. And here's what I want you to think about. You think about my sacrifice. That's what we're supposed to do this morning. And so let's, from here on, let's just talk. What, was, what does this text tell us about the sacrifice of Jesus? At Passover, the real Passover lamb, what does this text tell us about his sacrifice? Here's what stands out to me. Just a few thoughts. His sacrifice included his very body and blood. It included his very life. 
When you go through the text and you look where Jesus makes these comments, he uses these elements and he says, these are pictures of my physical body and blood. Okay, people in some churches, like the church I grew up, they say, okay, these are the actual body and blood of Jesus that get changed. That That would be so reprehensible. If Jesus was doing that in that meal with those Jews, his disciples would have rejected it. All the Jews know, it is clear from the Old Testament, you don't eat the blood. You never eat the blood. You never eat the blood. Even Peter, after he was, after Jesus ascends into heaven and he's told, eat these animals, he struggles with violating the Jewish traditional foods. Jesus would not have violated the Old Testament and transferred, transmuted, changed the cracker and the juice into his physical blood. They are just mere pictures. They're just symbols. That's all they are, and they stay symbolic. But they symbolize what Jesus sacrificed. Jesus in this passage, by the way, just for, for your sake of information, Jesus doesn't use the common word that is used through most of the gospel when he says, this is my body. Usually in the Bible when it's talking about the body, it uses a word in the Greek that is sarks. This time he uses the word soma. When he uses soma, he's talking about, this is my person. This is my whole being. This is me. This is, it's not just my flesh. He's saying, I'm giving my entire self. And remember, from a Jewish point of view, life is in the blood. So I'm giving my entire being, my entire life. So I'm giving up myself. My entire, this just isn't, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through a, a short period of just a physical pain and then it's over with. No, I'm giving my life. I'm giving my all for you. And so that sacrifice, he says, I want you to remember when you have to celebrate that what I did is I gave my very life for you. That's his sacrifice. That's what we think about this morning when these things are distributed to you. This is what Christ gave for us. His very, very, very life for us. There is, um, there is something else that we should be thinking about this morning. We should remember that his sacrifice was made with Jesus' total control and his cooperation. This isn't forced upon Jesus. When Jesus gave himself, he willingly did this for you. Now, here's how it's point. The story highlights, and I thought, I, I think I've tried to bring that to you. It highlights his deity, his greatness, his power. He predicted he would go to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he says, go and get the house and find the house. He's predicting that somebody's going to betray me. I'm willing to do all this. He's not running away from Jerusalem. He's not running away from Judas. He is saying all these thoughts about, here's what's going to happen to me. Here's what's going And he knows He knows this. He's even, in the text, it highlights that he even knows Judas' betrayal. And look at the next couple verses after the communion passage. He and Peter are having a conversation. And he says, you're going to deny me, Peter. Oh, no, I'll never deny you. You and everyone else will deny me before the night is over. All of this is saying to you, the reader, those of you who are interested in studying your Bible, what jumps out of the page is Jesus is God. Jesus is in control. He knows everything. He knows the house. He knows the betrayer. He knows what his disciples will do. He's not going into this like an accident, like this is a mistake. He is eyes wide open. He's going in. He is choosing 
to do this for you. And then on top of it, we use, as Jesus is talking about and explaining things, he is going to talk about the idea of the Son of Man. You see that in verse 21. He uses, and by the way, this is his title that he and he alone uses in the Gospel of Mark. Nobody else calls him that. He calls himself this. This Son of Man title comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the Psalms and it comes from Daniel. And it talks about the one who is the, the one greatest human being who will come and be the ruler of God's kingdom on earth. He is the one who will sit at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is a very unique title. Showing power, preeminence, authority, you know, his greatness. And in the book of Mark... Mark frequently has, has quoted Jesus highlighting the greatness of the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He is the one and the only one who has the power to forgive sins. The Son of Man is the one who is in charge of the Sabbath. It is the Son of Man who rules and can determine what is done on the Sabbath days. It is the Son of Man who will come in glory. It is the Son of Man, again stated, a second time, will come in glory. It is the Son of Man who is the judge of all men. Get, get the picture. The writer wants you, the reader, who's coming to communion, to understand that Jesus, that day that he introduced this communion service, Jesus was all-powerful. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was the greatest human being with authority and understanding. And he knew what this was going to be. This is no accident that he's going to die. He's not caught up with all the hubbub of what's going on in society. And he had other plans, but they got waylaid. That is not this picture. Jesus is in control. Things did not spin out of control. Things can spin out of control in our lives. I remember telling you years ago that in college, I had a job where I worked in a car wash area for a Cadillac dealership. One of the things they did the last couple months I was there after three years is they installed this, this brand new, this automatic type of a, of a waxing machine. Before that, it was the waxing machine was my elbow grease, okay, doing it. Now they put this, this thing in with these big brushes that were there. And this was new in those days. So this, I know, it's, you know, yes, we didn't, you know, we had motors. We weren't doing the Flintstone thing, but this thing was new. So I bring the car in and I'm going to get the car ready to have it waxed. It's a Cadillac, brand new, and I would do the prep work. And so what I would have to do is spray the wax with a, you know, like a paint sprayer type thing and spray it on the hood and then the, rub, the roller would go over and this one would spin this way and one on that side. And I would then stand back with the air hose connected to the canister and I'm thinking, Batman, that didn't wax really good. I'm going to get in there and spray some more. So I pushed the roller back a little bit and I start spraying. And like an idiot, I'm, I, you know, chewing and walking, chewing bubblegum walking isn't my forte, doing two things at once. So holding this and spraying, all of a sudden I let this thing go. Next thing I know, whack! All of a sudden, and I'm, I'm against now the side of the car where the mirror is, and I'm getting whacked and whacked and whacked. And I lost control of the air hose. And it got caught up in the, in the roller. So all of a sudden I'm ducking and I'm ducking and I hear a crash and there went the side window and the mirror got taken off. And it came around a second time. I'm ducking and I'm, when I duck, I get my... This was really shiny that day. I'm telling you, it was, it was getting buffed. 
and I get whacked in the side with that air, that thing. And then I'm thinking, okay, I got to get out and grab the hose and I'm trying to work out. <sighs> Wrong way, because now this buffer is doing this thing. And I'm getting buffed and buffed and buffed. And totally out of control. Until my screaming and yelling caused all the mechanics in the shop to come over, stand there and laugh <laughs> before one of them finally turned off the power. Okay. Totally out of control. It just got away from me. Events in Jesus' life did not get away from him. He was in total control the whole time. Which, by the way, that is, that is just amazing how that impacts the communion service. Think this through. Think this through. That the sovereign God opted, willingly opted, to die in your place. Amazing. For our benefit, he chose to give his life. That ought to humble us. This was no mistake. When we come to this service, remember his sacrifice was provided to give you forgiveness of sins. The passage, Jesus says, he makes the comment, this, he says, is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Now, Matthew uses the word, uh, not for shed, but he uses the word for the remission or forgiveness of many. Now, don't be confused. Don't say, oh, many limits it. No, 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 no. Actually, it doesn't. The many is without end. The Bible clearly says that Jesus Christ died to take away the sins of the entire world. The Bible clearly says he died for the sins of all people. The Bible says that he is not only the covering of our sins, the propitiation, but not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Every person is included that he sacrificed. He's the savior of all men. He's the savior of the world. When Jesus gave his life, what he gave, his body, his blood, his being, what he sacrificed was for forgiveness for all of us, for all of our sins forever. That's a wonderful thought. That's what we need to think about this morning. That what Jesus gave, it was sufficient for the sins of all people. Even... Even those people that he's ministering to. The people who are going to deny him. And he says it in the next few verses. He says, you're all going to deny me. Their sins can be covered. Even when he, in the passage, it goes on. It talks about how when he gets to the cross, there's a thief. There's a thief. Okay? And he's going to be having uh, his sacrifices sufficient to cover their thievery. Those who are, who are attacking him. He says, Father, forgive them. Jesus, Jesus has enough ability and enough of a sacrifice paid for every single person who, was, who is alive then and alive today. He covers all of our sins. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. That he, the God who is in total control, would choose to give his life for you and me so that we could have complete and total forgiveness. That's what we're celebrating this morning. That's what we should be thinking about. We think about, you know, acts of love. Corey Wiseman, 2012, Gettysburg College. This young man had come to the college with the idea that he was going to play on the varsity basketball. He even began his freshman year practicing with them. He was going to be one of their starters or sixth man. But that fall, before the season started, he suffered a stroke. A young man, 18 years old, have a stroke. And as a result, it left him paralyzed on one side. For the next four years, he worked, he worked, he rehabbed. He did all the things that were needed to try to get to the ability where he could once again function. 
And so it comes to the basketball season. He followed the team, but he could never play. But they asked him on the last game of the season, senior night, last home game, if he would join them for that night. Oh, he was honored. They elected him to be the captain of the team that night. They asked if he would lead them out onto the court. And so there he is in uniform, still not able to run. He had to hobble a bit, but he gets out on the court. And the coach put him out there at the beginning of the game and let him play a couple minutes. Hardly touched the ball. And even, and even that first moment when it came to him, he was still so nervous and just ability wasn't all there. So they had him sit down through most of the game. But when they had him called out of the game, the crowd gave him a standing ovation. Because everybody knew his story. Even the other team got up and gave him a round of applause. Late in the game, they have a significant lead. And the coach is looking down at Corey and thought, yeah, let's put him in. So they put Corey in. The other team called a timeout. The other team... I think it's Washington College. The other team then, what they did is they, their coach gathered all the players around. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to foul him. Make sure you foul him. He touches the ball, you foul him. It wasn't to get the ball. It's totally different. What they did is they go out and the team, they, they're passing around. Corey gets the ball and they foul him, which means he goes to the free point shooting. And the idea was they wanted to give him a chance to score. The other team did. And so he takes the ball and he's holding it. And he's kind of trying to bounce it. Remember, he's suffered from some paralysis. And he shoots as best he can. It falls way short. You know, the audience says, oh. He does it again. Does it even as hard as he could. Falls short again. The coach called a timeout. Washington coach said, as soon as he give the, get that ball up in a turnover, let him get the ball and you foul him. So he gets another chance. They did it. They did it. Here's Corey back on the free throw line. The first shot misses. Now he's trying with his best and it shoots. It hits the backboard, rolls around and goes through. The entire gym explodes. The other team is mobbing him. Afterwards, the, the, uh, the vice president of athletics for Gettysburg College wrote the other school a letter. And he made this comment. Your coach, Rob Nugent, along with his staff and student athletes, displayed a measure of compassion that I have never witnessed in over 30 years of being involved in intermediate athletics. I mean, what a, what a fantastic you know, moment. But I want to tell you about a far greater moment of compassion that exceeds even something as great as that. This is it. Jesus Christ giving his life for you and for me to have forgiveness. Jesus Christ is giving, sacrificing willingly. There's a forethought. His sacrifice initiated and sealed a new covenant. We can't get away from this. He says, this is the New Testament in my blood. New Testament is the word covenant. By a new covenant, he's obviously referring that there was an old one. Well, there was. There was a couple of different ones, but the one we're talking about is the one that was established with Israel at Mount Sinai there after they came out of Egypt that Moses is leading. And Moses is talking to God. He comes back from God and he says, here's what God is proposing. You be my people, I will be your God. Let's establish a covenant relationship. And so they have this covenant that they, that they put together with one another. You need to understand that in sealing this covenant... 
There was sacrifices from God's perspective. You sacrifice and shed blood. They took that blood and then Moses literally sprinkled the blood on the people as he stood above them as an indication that this blood is the ink by which we are signing this covenant. This is, what, this is our commitment of the covenant. We have covenants today like marriage and we give a ring that indicates this is our commitment. This is our, what we're, we're giving. That time they would, show, they, would, they would do the shedding of the blood. It was an indication, this is how serious we are. God is serious, the people were serious about it, that this was a covenant. That's the old covenant. Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to make a new covenant. One that is better. It's predicted in Jeremiah. It's predicted in Ezekiel. And Jesus says, you remember reading about this? This covenant that was predicted? Well, this is the night I'm starting it. I'm initiating it. And I'm going to initiate it with my blood being shed. That's how serious I am. I'm, I'm giving my ink blood. Signing it from God's perspective to you with my very own blood. And it is a far better covenant than that old one. In, that, in this new covenant. This new covenant talks about how God will write the word on our hearts. Everything comes from the inside out. This new covenant, he says that what's going to happen is the Holy Spirit will indwell all new believers. Didn't happen in the old covenant. This new covenant, what's going to happen is you will have spiritual success, ability to do what God has said you could do. They couldn't do that in the old covenant. They couldn't keep all the commandments. But we have the ability through the power of Christ, through the Spirit of God, I can do all things through Christ. And it says this is a far better covenant. This is, this is one that will, will never ever stop. It's irrevocable. It's eternal. God will never break it, he said. He predicted he would stop the old one, but this one he says, I will never break it. Not, it's it's going to be in place until the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. This is what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews chapters 4 through 10, especially in the middle, chapter 8, talks about how Jesus has brought a far better covenant. No more sacrifice. No more priests. Direct communication with God. One that is going to be an eternal relationship that we can have if we ask Christ to be our Savior. If we come to Him and say, please forgive me of my sins. I understand I can't get myself to heaven by what I do or have done. It's all of you. You died. You gave your blood. You are the sacrifice. You are the payment. I want your forgiveness that you purchased for me. Please forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We enter into that eternal covenant. That's what this is representing. When we talk and when we do these, these elements this morning, we got to think God has given us his personal eternal promise of forgiveness and a home in heaven. Wow. Wow. There's a fifth thought. We close with this. And that fifth idea is this sacrifice opened up the way to God's kingdom. Jesus is in this meal and he's talking. He says, there's these four cups, but I'm not going to have the last cup of wine with you. I'm not going to do that. Because that last cup of wine, I'm going to leave until we get into the kingdom. 
until we, we have God bring that kingdom on earth and then we have that feast in heaven and then and only then will I drink that wine cup with you who are my children, those of you who have received me as, my, as, your, as Savior. He says, I'm going to wait. But what he indicates by this is this sacrifice he's making is opening up that eternal home in heaven for us. This sacrifice is the key. This sacrifice indicates that this kingdom of God that Mark talks about, Matthew and the idea, of the, or Matthew at the kingdom of heaven, same thing. It's the idea that this is looking forward to that time in heaven. The time that Jesus has made possible by his sacrifice. One of our gentlemen here in our congregation has had a weird experience. He said, I could share this with you. That with the loss of a family member, he's run into all kinds of difficulty. That in passwording the phone, his name wasn't on the contract, only the loved ones. And so when he wanted to change the contract, he had to have the password. Without the password, he can't make any changes to the contract. So this has been going on for several months and months and months. You can't change the, the, you can't stop it. You can't alter the contract. It's there unless you give us the password, but that person is dead and I'm paying the bill. That doesn't make any difference. You know, you can pay it, but you can't determine any changes in it because you have to have the password. Then I won't pay it anymore. <laughs> well, then it'll affect your credit. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, I've got to have this specific password to be able to change a contract that I'm paying for. Okay, how do I change the password? We'll send you a form. Do you know how that goes? So multiple conversations, multiple times and minutes on the phone. And we'll send you the form. We'll send you the form. They told me that, you know, Five times ago. Well, we, we'll send you the form. We mean it this time. Until the form was completed and all the stuff and then a reassigned password, there was no touching the phone at all. By the way, note to wise people, make sure that if you're doing these contracts, you have a second name on the contract so you can handle that. But the point is, there are some things that are so secured, you have to have a special, special password. Do you realize that whether we like it or, you know, like that illustration or not, do you realize that heaven is passworded that way? There is only one. One way into heaven. And it's not a word, it's a man. It's a man who is called the Word of God. It's the man Jesus Christ. It's the man who sacrificed his life and he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but... Not baptism, not going to church, not taking communion, but by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died and rose again to allow you into heaven. He wants to give you that. That's what we're celebrating here, his sacrifice that made it possible for us to be forgiven. That helps us to to remember how much he cares, this great one giving his life so that you and I can have the assurance of going to heaven. Do you have that this day? Do you know for sure? In a moment, we're going to sing a couple songs. And when we sing those songs, some of our staff are going over to that door. 
And they will be over there waiting that time for you and for others that may want to talk. And when we sing, feel free to get up and go over there at that time and to go and talk with them. And then to have that, that time with the in Word of God to know what you need to pray, what you need to do to know that you're going to heaven. Then come back and celebrate communion with us and celebrate what Christ has done and let it be meaningful. Let me close with this, that when, you, when, they, sang a, uh, when they finished their Passover meal, it says they sang a hymn and went out. One of the songs that they would sing was Psalm 113, 14, 15, 116, 17. And usually at the end of the meal, it was Psalm 118. If I were you, I would read Psalm 118 for this communion service. Read it from the perspective of this is Jesus headed for Gethsemane. This is Christ and some of his thoughts about him and God as he's going to sacrifice. It's very, very interesting to read it from Christ's perspective or from the disciples' perspective, how they are going to suffer. But as we prepare for that communion service, let's give the Lord the glory. Let's sing. Let's reflect. And then let's celebrate communion. You are welcome to stay. But if somebody says, you know, I I prefer not to celebrate communion, this would be a fine time to exit while we just sing a little bit and then we celebrate communion. Let's sing about God and His holiness. If you want to talk to one of the men, one of the ladies about your eternal security, feel free to go and do that.